0: Hello, welcome to the start of the week and another Not The Top 20 podcast. This is the Monday pod. This is a podcast breaking down the abundant EFL action and talking points from the weekend. It was a cracking weekend across all three leagues, loads and loads to talk about. This podcast is sponsored by Betfair, who we thank very much for their continued and complete support of this podcast this season uh, and last season as well. I am Head Professional Development Phase Coach Ali Maxwell. Mm -hmm. On the line with me is Youth Development Phase Transition Coach and Bad Cop, George Ellick. You're right.
1: right? Yeah, I think I'm more senior to
0: you, but except for that, I'm fine. Hmm. Arguable. Um, We had a good tweet at the end of last week. Uh, Richard tweeted saying, my sister asked me if I had any betting tips for her husband on football. I gave her the link to the Not The Top 20 pod rings me this morning and said,
1: tell you what, Rich, that George has a nice voice. It was a great thing to see about three hours before I went live on on national radio. And I therefore caught myself sitting, uh, I did the Five Live hit from the Kassam Stadium uh, kind of media area. And I caught myself really talking like this, just really singing down the line into your ears with a lovely soft voice. I stopped (laughs) after that because I thought it was pretty weird.
0: (laughs) Right, before we get into the championship action, I want to shout out someone called Phil Leek he produced what we call in the EFL the victory loops. It's happened already in the EFL. It's the greatest reflection of why these leagues are so great to to cover. This is even before this weekend's action. Phil tweeted, we are only 12 weeks into the season and we can already create a victory loop. That is where team one beats team two, team two defeats team three, and so on and so on until team 24 beats team one. It's happened in the championship. It's already happened in League One, and it's happened in League Two already this season. League Two is probably my favourite because before the weekend, there were two teams, Orient and Carlisle, that had only lost one game this season. Looping
1: all over the world, George. Exciting. Um, It just shows how competitive these leagues are. That's why we love them. Um, It does feel like this day comes around earlier and earlier every year. Loop day. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's mad, the league two one, um, because it does feel like, I mean, with the championship, I'm I'm not surprised at all because every team seems to have lost quite a few games, but as you say, in league, league two, there's a big disparity between the top and the bottom teams. No matter. Good cop in the championship is pretty broad, really. It's just the fact
0: that there were three genuine derby matches in the championship this weekend. And I absolutely love all of them. I just love, Derby games so much as a neutral, they are the thing that excites me the most, I would say. We started with Blackpool, Preston 4-2 to Blackpool. Then we had uh, Watford-Luton 4-0 and Swansea-Cardiff 2-0 running concurrently. Um, they make me feel, when I watch them, a, a really heady mixture of nervous and excited and kind of tense and I love it's a great feeling. It's what it's all about. Uh, and I think it was a pretty good slate of them as well. So happy to have had Derby weekend in the Championship. That's good cop this week. We're going to start with those derbies uh, after your bad cop.
1: My bad cop is going to Callum Robinson, so Ooh. we can talk about one of the uh, derbies straight away: Swansea versus Cardiff in the in the South Wales Derby a you know a game that Swansea have dominated in reasons in recent seasons uh, came into this one as, as very much the favourites but Mark Hudson and his Cardiff side you know Mark Hudson said that he wanted to show Swansea what they were all about um, they came into this off the back of a an incredibly unfair red card at QPR and again they'd lost 3-0 so um, you know the red card coming very early in the game and, and conceding a penalty as well um, a red card that was then overturned in the week but I mean, he can have complaints at Callum Robinson, one of his senior players and one of their best players for his behavior, but he certainly can't have any complaints about the red card. Now I'm annoyingly for you. I'm going to talk about some other refereeing decisions and some other straight red cards later on in the podcast, but what Callum Robinson is doing here is so stupid. It's just such a stupid, un, you know, a stupid avoidable red card where um, the ball, the, 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 the whistler is, is blown for a free kick Callum Robinson catches the ball. Um, ben Cabango comes up behind him and tries to get the ball off him. And Robinson reacts by just shoving the ball in, in Cabango's face. It's pretty innocuous. It, it, you know, when you see the angle that he actually caught him on, it looks like he kind of catches on the side of the, for- of the forehead. But it's unprovoked. It is incredibly stupid. And I think he left referee with little to do rather than give a, you know, given that he saw it or his assistant saw it. And give the red cards and you could see on Robinson's face how embarrassed he was and how ashamed he was to be caught out in such a way as i say like it wasn't even like the case where they've deliberately tried to provoke him into a reaction it was just completely mindless and he's massively let his his teammates down he's most importantly let the fans down in a game that matters so much to them and off the back of that sending off after seven minutes um you know it felt like the three points that Swansea ended up Getting off the back of a 2-0 win was was just, uh, yeah, yeah it, it was always going to happen.
0: Not very smart at all. Swansea have won three of these in a row now. 3-0, 4-0 and now 2-0. There were all sorts of good stats off the back of this. Predictable ones, really, when you have a, a possession-based team playing against a team down to 10 men early on in the game. Uh, Matt Grimes completed more passes than Cardiff City. I think one of the other Swansea players did as well. And maybe another was equal with them i think darling may be equal with them so you can get an idea of how this game looked after the red card it, it completely ruined any plans that cardiff would have had and uh, you know e- even then uh, cardiff got a bit of luck as well with a, a remarkable kipre handball or sort of punch i guess uh, that the referee thought had come off his head and did not give the penalty for a couple of individuals for swans that i wanted to, to point out a bit of a theme of recent pods has been comparing championship players to the best players in the world such as Erling Haaland, Kylian Mbappe, Yates. Uh, well, I think Ollie Cooper is Mason Mount, or rather the Mason Mount of the championship. Nice. In that, Cooper is... A very industrious, hardworking player off the ball, first and foremost. I think he is what you'd call a manager's dream, which is what has always been said about Mason Mount, uh, in that he works really hard, he presses well, he's mobile, he's quite quick. Uh, and, and without the ball, you know you're going to get a certain level of competency uh, and intensity, which if you want to press, as many teams do, uh, is obviously going to help. Then there's the fact that on the ball, he is... I'd say he's tidy on the ball rather than spectacular. He's not the most unbelievably creative passer of all time. He's not someone who has unbelievable vision and threads through balls all the time and sets up a ton of chances, but he's very good on the ball and keeping it simple but moving the ball quickly is still something that comes with a lot of value. Cooper, Cooper, His movement's very good out into the channels, combining with the wingbacks or finding pockets of space. Uh, And then also as a goal threat, we've seen him score a couple of goals, including one here where he, you know, he doesn't take a ton of shots actually, if you look at the stats, but when he does so, he does so in good positions. He doesn't, he's not wasteful in terms of shooting. And again, I think that's what Martin wants from a player in this role. He doesn't want someone taking a ton of shots from outside the box. That ruins the whole point of their slow possession play. Uh, And Cooper's finish was absolutely brilliant. He took that shot so quickly uh, when others might have taken a touch and and tried to shift it and shoot. And and it might have been blocked. So, um, yeah, Ollie Cooper, I've been talking about since probably the start of this year when he was catching my eye on loan at Newport County. Brilliant to see that he is so established now in this Swansea team. I think he's perfect for it. uh, And I think it's a really good role for him in the team as well. Uh, And the only other person to mention
1: is Michael Obafemi, who scored here. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's funny to think, you know, we we think back to last season uh, and think of his prolific second half of the season. Um, But because he didn't really play much in the first half, um, he has basically already played about half the amount of minutes that he played in all of last season. Um, He scored 12 goals in two thousand. Minutes last season. Before the game um, on Sunday, he scored two goals in in 850 minutes this season. So you can see a massive drop off in terms of productivity. Part of that is, of course, because he's not starting games. As you mentioned, there was there was definitely some unrest um, after the transfer speculation um, late on in the window. It you know it's one of those things where it seemed fairly pointless that that Swansea would dig their heels in. Um, reject sizable bids for his services and then effectively not really play him because he wasn't in the right mindset. But um, Peru's suspension certainly helped that. It's a funny one with, with Peru because I think he's only scored four goals this season. He, you know, it looked to me like his form was was way, way better in the second half of last season when he played it in behind uh, Obafemi. But they, they you know, switched back at the beginning of the season in Obafemi's absence to, to playing Peru as a lone striker again. where I just don't think they're as good. I think Obafemi showed on yes against 10 men um, but he had enough chances to score more than the one goal he put two decent chances wide kind of one-on-ones um, and I think he's just a far better option to have um, in terms of trying to unlock defences um, I think Peru's a great player and got the long-ranging shooting ability uh, where most of his goals come from, but I think having both of them, especially given how often they're camped in the opposition half, is the best way to go. So yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his. It was another winner for the for the Betfair column um, readers as well, which is handy. And um, in, in terms of him scoring, and yeah, I'm sure he'll he'll now get a longer stretch in the first team, even when Pro is back.
0: While that was going on, Watford were disposing of their rivals, Luton Town. It was the first time they'd played each other in front of fans in, I think, 16 years. Uh, it lived up to the hype in terms of the atmosphere before the game. On the pitch, though, George, can I call this a surprise result? I'm calling it a surprise result.
1: 4-0 I think to it's a Watford. surprise result. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a definitely a surprise scoreline, um, if not a surprise result. You know, as you say, I don't think you can ever have a surprise result when the winning team was you know basically an even money chance to win the game. Um but certainly on the balance of what we've seen so far this season, I did not anticipate that that Luton would fold in the way that they did. Um especially in a game like this, especially given the you know the personality of the of the team and the club and the manager um in a in a heated derby. It, it kind of felt like the only way this would happen would be if there was something similar to what happened at, at Cardiff with the Luton player boiling over early in the game uh, that did happen with um, it's just a classic one of those red cards but Osho gets dis- uh, gets um, dispossessed and you can just see in his body language that he is about to go after someone and, mm. and then he does and he gets the red card but it came at 4-0 it's, it's irrelevant in terms of the the way the game went um, where it was another case of just quality players doing quality things um, for Watford. You know, Joao Pedro uh, being crucial, Ishmael Star giving the goal, a brilliant finish from Keenan Davis, like a weird scorpion kick slash o- overhead kick thing, which I didn't really work out what he did until about the third time I so saw it. So good. Um, which kind of put them on the front for after three minutes. It was just a, a, a really quality display and, and a massive bounce back after um, a, a mauling in midweek, which no one really expected either. Um, we're seeing signs sometimes, um, you know, the Luton game and, and the Stoke game as to what this Watford team can do under Slavon Bilic. Uh if they, you know, I think back to what was the 15-16 season when under Jukanovic, they had a, a pretty dodgy first half of the season then basically won every game in from in February and, and went up automatically. It does kind of feel like that could happen here because the quality they've got, if they could work out how to find a, a you know, maintain that level of performance because, yeah. um you know, they are the team with three or four Premier League quality players in their side.
0: Yeah, pleasingly chaotic, I think would be the phrase to describe Watford under Bilic. They thrashed Stoke. Uh, On the telly, first up. Then they lost to Swansea and Blackpool. Then they beat Norwich on the telly. And then they lost 3 0 at Millwall in midweek, also on the telly. And then they thrashed Luton on the red button. So not quite on the telly. Um, Unbelievable. So it's on the telly. (laughs) Unbelievable performance from Joao Pedro. Uh, This is a kid who made his professional debut in the Flaflu. Derby in Brazil, Flamenco, Fluminense—one of the spiciest derbies in world football. He was born in derby games. He was molded by them, and he was always going to shine here. Um, that the way that he drifted and darted past Luton defenders and just opened the whole pitch up. Um, such a, a a brilliant player and, and playing in a position in the pitch where he can get on the ball on the turn, drift past one or two players and and and, and then do some fabulous things to create chances for Watford. I, I might be being greedy when I say that I want to see him get his numbers up even more from here. Like he is, even if he didn't score another goal all season, he'd still be an incredible ball carrier. He'd still be a, a good creator a very good creator for the position he plays in at the level i just want to see him get more shots off i want to see him mm. score more goals basically it's it's very difficult to do all of those things but if anyone in the championship can i think it's probably João Pedro uh, and Saar's uh, switch to the left side is looks to be working out pretty well him and him and Kamara combining well again here like they did against uh, Norwich as for Luton uh, as you say a terrible start and then a a sort of classic Derby-style collapse in that they gave away two goals in the second half and then had a very predictable red card at the end. Uh, Let's finish Mm. off Derby chat with Preston 4. Preston, I'm so excited Mm. as I'm mixing the team's names up. Blackpool 4, Preston 2, George. One of the things the Preston fans were enjoying doing uh, since the summer was goading Blackpool fans by telling them that their manager, Michael Appleton, is a, a huge Preston North End fan. It didn't matter on the day
1: because he's now a Derby winner in Tangerine. 4-2. Such a big result, this, for Michael Appleton, um, in terms of continuing the work that he's had to do to, to win over um, Blackpool fans after his appointment. You know, for those who don't remember, um, not only did Appleton have a, a very short, ill-fated spell early in his managerial reign under the Oystons, so has connections to that poisonous old regime, but he was also a Preston North End player, Uh and there were rumours abound about his uh, his son's alliance to the club, about tattoos, apparently, that members of the Appleton family had of the club crest and the rest of it. So, you know, he's he's certainly had a decent start to his um, Blackpool reign anyway. Even, you know, they might be lowly in the table, but I think off the back of Neil Critchy's reign, um, Blackpool fans have, after widespread negativity after his appointment, have certainly warmed to him. So for him to go and put four past Preston in a home derby game against them uh, is... Uh, Yeah, a huge result. I think it's probably as big a result as you can really get because a defeat here, suddenly Blackpool would have been in the relegation zone. It would have been the end of October and a a defeat to the the rivals. I think murmurings probably would have started again. Uh, Loads of really good performances in this game as well. I thought, you know, Jerry Yates with another double, apples and pears at it again, um, Mm. which you've got to love. Charlie Patino with uh, a lovely finish from range um, and then a, a brilliant assist as well for um yates's second goal and i thought yates is you know the goal on the break as well deserves credit even though it was of course because um because woodman freddie would to come up for the corner at three uh, two i'm going to call it a a pass from yates even though it's kind of like a swiped um challenge but i think he, he i think he, if you see the angle from from front facing mm. you can a see poked. him have a look over to his right and do it deliberately to, to cj hamilton who doesn't panic and takes a couple of touches before Yeah, It's never easy. Um, I don't think kicking the ball into an empty net from 40 yards uh, when running at full pelt. So credit to him for that as well. I want to give it more beans than that. I've written, what a finish, CJ Hamilton. It's on his weaker
0: foot. He is at full pelt. He's probably 45 yards out. And of course, there's no goalkeeper in the goal. But I think if you and I and every single person listening to this podcast tried that exact shot right now with our weaker foot, I'm saying probably 0.5 percent conversion rate at full at yeah. full sprint which don't get me wrong is a different speed for me and for you and most people compared to CJ Hamilton but' you've, <laughs> you've got to get the curl just right when you're hitting it with your yeah, yeah, he nailed it and he starts it well outside the post brilliant brilliant and I always think those goals that you score when the opposition keeper is up they have to be up there with some of the best goals to celebrate in football because there's insane tension 10 seconds before as their keeper trots up and you think, oh, my God, if we concede to a goalkeeper or if we just concede at all an equaliser here, then this is going to be the worst day of my life. And within 20 seconds, your favourite lads have jogged down the other end and and slotted in to win by two goals. It's absolutely perfect. As for Yates, just such a he's a a very well-rounded player, I think. In terms of a modern forward player for the championship, he's a cracker because he can play wide yeah. as he basically is at the moment playing right wing. They've got Medine up top, who they don't really ask to score goals. They just ask him to, to kind of hold it up, bring others into play, set up goals like he did flicking on a, a set piece for the first. I think it was, um, you know, Yates against Watford the other day, spent most of the game in the right back position defending Kamara um, and he can give you that and he's mobile and he can press. He carries it pretty well. His dribbling numbers are pretty good for for strikers or forward players in the Championship. Not quite Giocares, not quite Semenyo, not quite Keenan Davis, but just one level below that. I think there's just a lot to like. And, and not to mention the fact that he actually scored two headers here. He's only scored... I think before that day, before Saturday, he'd only scored five of his fifty-six career goals with his head, but he scored thirty percent of his goals with his with his weaker left foot. So he's pretty well-rounded on that front as well. A, a really um, modern championship striker that's in some serious form. Uh, and Charlie Patino, I'm glad you mentioned, passed it in from twenty yards. It was such a sweet finish. Uh, he mm. has started the last seven games now, Patino, uh, after taking a few weeks to settle in. And his quality, I think, is really shining through. I watched on Y Scout his long passing from the game. And, you know, he, he didn't attempt that many, maybe eight or nine long passes. But within them, you just had a bit of everything, you know. Incredible vision, Uh, a lot of them first-time passes or really quickly released. Uh, He doesn't need a few touches to sort of control the ball and get his head up. He's already got the picture and technically he's good enough that he can get passes off really quickly. So uh, I've been really impressed with him and well done to Blackpool. A big derby win there. Uh, Looked absolutely rocking at Bloomfield Road. Uh, we got two 4-2 away wins. George Sunderland 2, Burnley 4 or Rotherham 2, Hull 4? Where would you like
1: to start? Sunderland 2, Burnley 4. I thought having cursed Luton on Sunday, uh, I thought maybe it was going to be the case again with Burnley here um, with a a pretty weird game because um, it was a game of few chances yet we saw six goals scored, only 19 shots in the game, uh, majority of which were were from range, um, two goals to start, proceedings from Sunderland going 2-0 up a very casual finish from um, Ahmad for the first goal after some great play by Jack Clark, who again, I'll say every week is one of my favourite players to watch in the whole league. Uh, And then Daniel making it 2-0 and it looked um, like Burnley's good form and run of, um, of, you know, unbeaten run was going to come to an end. This was the first game I think in nine where they'd gone behind uh, where the first goal hadn't been scored by them and and it isn't really a situation we've seen them being too much before, especially, you know, away against a decent side in Sunderland. But, the reaction was was pretty incredible, to be honest. They won the game four two. Teller with a with a header uh, before uh, a pretty lucky goal from Benson, where he you know swung in across that evaded everybody, who went in at the far post. Has anyone ever described a goal like that and not said the word evade? Do you think? No, no. And then the quality goal of the game from Anna Saruri, um, an unbelievable finish. A player who looks. I think I've been a little bit underwhelmed by Benson so far. Um, You know, we knew that. Uh, Burnley wanted to bring in plenty of, of attacking talent, which they did. And Zaruri, to me, so far, looks like the one who's got that little bit of something special who can do. Um, you know, any player who can score the kind of goal that he scored there is impressive. And then on the break, Brownhill made it 4 um, 2. I think the, the XG for Burnley was only about one uh, for their four goals. It wasn't like they created loads of chances. It was clinical, um, it was quality, um, and probably. A little bit unfortunate for Sunderland, as I say, with with one of the crucial goals being an over well not an overhit cross, but a cross that that, that nobody had touched. So um, you know, as a big Burnley fan, well, I mean, as a fan of this Burnley side, I should say, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd love to sit here and say that it was relentless pressure and uh, and they were fully deserving of their win. I think that would be a bit unfair on Sunderland, um, but the booze did bring out bring out a full time as you'd anticipate for a home team squandering a 2-0 lead. Um, But yeah, Zeruri, probably the player to take out of this one.
0: That goal gave me huge Arno Danjuma vibes. Mm. Like big Danjuma vibes, which as you can imagine, excited me quite a
1: lot. Now I think... Also, just quickly as well, I mean, we spoke early on in the um, season that Ashley Barnes doesn't really look the part up top for this Burnley side. Uh, Jay Rodriguez came into the side when he was back fit and they have looked a different team. At halftime, uh, Benson came on for Barnes when it was 2-0 and they ended up winning the game 4-2. So uh, I think Vincent might have to take note. I'll do Rotherham 2-0 four. I just want to
0: start by saying Hull are, are ridiculous. It's quite funny that before the season started, we said, this feels like the one team that could finish first or 24th and any position in between. And throughout this season, they have done a bit of everything. Like at their worst, I'd say Hull might have been the worst team in the league this season. Because you're thinking Huddersfield are obviously bottom at the moment. But I think at Hull's worst, in their worst defeats, they've they've reached lower levels than Huddersfield. Mm. But on their day, they can be quite good as well. And we kind of saw that here. Um, we are still, still got caretaker Andy Dawson in charge. Uh, he's He's been there long enough to have had some bad results and some good results. Uh, and he's hit upon a system that I wouldn't have predicted that's helped him grab two away wins in a week, having lost six of their previous seven games to nil. Uh, and the system is Ryan Longman up top. Not many people have trusted him to play up top. He's played on the off the left, left wing, left wing back, right wing, right wing back. No one's really trusted him to play as a striker down the middle, but he's got two and two. Pelkas as a second striker, he scored as well here. Still haven't quite worked out what sort of player Pelkas is, but he scored. Uh, and then it's a kind of box, I guess, in midfield or a diamond, if you like. Basically, serri and Woods sitting, distributing recycling and Doherty and, and Slater breaking forward. They both scored cracking goals in midweek. So uh, it's uh, surprising, unusual. Uh, you've got Jacob Greaves playing left back, um, providing a, an assist and scoring his first goal for over a hundred games in a whole shirt, um, a new position for him. And uh, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens from here. I don't really know where they are at with this manager search. Liam, um, Liam Rossini is the current favorite, but there've been a few of them over the last few weeks. Uh, So it'd be be interesting to see. You could still talk me into anything for Hull, relegation or a sort of unlikely dart towards the top half of the table and who knows where from then. (laughs) As for Rotherham, I'm willing to suggest that the crazy win they had against Stoke in midweek took a lot out of them here. So I don't want to criticise them too much there. Their underlying numbers are quite concerning, Rotherham, but I think it's early enough in Matt Taylor's reign not to put too much importance on that at the moment. Uh, Good to see our our new best mate, Georgie Kelly, scoring again. Uh, 1.23 goals per 90 in-league action for Rotherham since joining.
1: Yeah, I'm a bit worried about Rotherham myself. I mean, this isn't necessarily just reactive to, to a 4-2 loss at home to, to Hull, although, yeah, I mean, that that isn't a good sign, especially because their home form has been so solid previously this season. It, it isn't necessarily really anything to do with Matt Taylor as well, who's a manager that I respect. I think it's very important to remember that You know, even though they've had a good start to the season, uh, Rotherham were anticipated to be one of the teams who would uh, be fighting for survival this season, who, um, you know, their recent record in in the championship is basically RRR for relegation, relegation, relegation. Um, And I think I'm right in saying they've got the worst expected goals ratio um, in the league at the moment. Um, overall part of that will be, be because they haven't been behind that often you know they've drawn a lot of games um, and game state will play a part in that but they haven't played Burnley yet they haven't played Sheffield United yet they haven't played Norwich yet um, their fixtures have generally been on the easier side um, You know they've had a lot of home games against teams in the, in the bottom half of the table and I also think because their they're strong start to the season you know the the idea is that they are kind of currently well clear of the relegation zone and that isn't really true either Um, you know they are currently 12th um, but Coventry are on 16 points, they're on 21 points, they're only 5 points off the relegation zone as it is at the moment moment. Um, I know Betfair Sportsbook is 16-5 to for them to get relegated I think that's a a massive, massive price um, for the team who um, were expected to be one of the worst teams in the league, who had a decent start, aren't clear of it and are putting in pretty poor performances at the moment Hey George, let's talk about the teams at the top of
0: the league. Uh, one of them's QPR, Queens Park Rangers, beating Wigan two-one. I think this chat is less about the, the match itself against Wigan, where actually Wigan gave them a pretty good run for their money. I've, I've seen QPR fans saying that that Wigan's performance is one of the best they've seen at Loftus Road this season. Uh, QPR's goals came from. Two corners, Uh, Johansson's delivery spot on, first for Field and then for for Balogon. uh, Broadhead had equalised for Wigan and they did have some chances in the second half as well. So not a vintage QPR performance, but we haven't spoken about what happened last week where Mick Beal was so heavily linked to the Wolves job that it seemed like it was all anyone was talking about last midweek big debates about, should he go? Would it be disloyal? Would it be right when he's got a good thing going at QPR to join Wolves in the position they're in, in the Premier League? All of it immaterial because Mick Beale committed his immediate future, at least to QPR. What did you make of that saga? Both Wolves quite publicly going after Beal after not that long in his first senior management job, Beal turning it down and staying at the league leading
1: Queen's Park <laughs> I assumed that they were so public in the pursuit of Beal because it was done, if I'm honest. I think these days you're either naive or you're Dale Vince if you think that clubs don't um, speak to uh, managers before official contact is made. And the way that Wolves went about the approach, it seemed obvious to me that the Beal had probably... Uh, verbalised some interest at the very least in the job. So the speed at which um, they turned it around was interesting. I was listening on, on the way back from the Oxford-Peterborough game on Saturday. I, I was driving home listening to um, uh, Five Live and listened to uh, Beal's interview where he said what I loved. He said when he had a chat with the owners, um, they all took off their club attire so they weren't wearing the club badges so they could speak as, as just man to man. Uh, rather than as as employees of the club, which is incredible. A lot of times that's actually true. <laughs> apparently mate, apparently he was actually crossing
0: his fingers behind his back for a lot of it as well. <laughs> Just you know, so that legally he wasn't liable. I love him.
1: I wish there was a Nick Mill podcast. I'd listen to it because I think he's fascinating to listen to. Um, but anyway, I mean it you know he it's quite a clever PR move. No, I'm not saying I was that, but you know, the to get um a group of fans you know clambering for your um for for you to commit your future to the club and then doing it which is net by jubilation it's a a pretty good way to galvanise a fan base and he absolutely did that and um, you know I'm delighted that he's staying I think he's yeah I mean it was interesting his interview afterwards that he go to the club website where you know, he's really made a rod for his own back in terms of loyalty. Now um, he spoke about how integrity is incredibly important to him. Um, he spoke about the the project that he's on with his players, and he he you know, he can't sell the dream to his players and, and not carry it out himself, which is completely fair enough. I mean, he's right. Um, but I did wonder when I saw the odds tumbling for the Villa job, at 24 hours later, if he was thinking like, "Oh God, wish I hadn't, wish I hadn't been quite so open about um, about this." But but crucially for me, I think that the it was a clever move for him. Because in my mind, if Beale had left and had gone to Watford and things hadn't worked out and he could have been out the door in six or eight weeks, the the reputation damage that that will do. I mean, we've even kind of seen it with Rob Edwards, but I've seen Oxford fans talking about the prospect of Edwards coming and they're like, well, hold on, he jumped ship at, at Forest Green after a year. Like, he jumped ship from a League Two club getting promoted into League One to a massive job in the Championship from a relegated Premier League team and people are pointing the finger at him about loyalty. For Mick Beale getting his first job in football and jumping after 15 games would have made it very, very difficult to persuade employers in the future that you were going to be able to fulfil your contract. So, mm. delighted for QPR fans. I think he's um a great person to have in the championship as a manager both in terms of his his personality uh, and also the the team that he's got currently uh, at the top of the league and this was you know it was probably their worst performance of the season uh, or up there with their worst performance of the season but they they won the game 2-1 and, and he was you know pretty open after the game saying that he knew that they weren't good enough but uh, still a big three points coming out of it Wiggins form on paper pretty concerning uh just six
0: points from their last eight league games the The manner of their performance here at q p r makes me not too concerned just yet. i think and this doesn't make it any easier for fans, but from my perspective, I think this sort of run is and always was likely to happen at some point in the season with Wiggins' squad and with their place in the in the championship food chain, if you like um the thing that worries me most right now is is the kind of mentality type, intangible type stuff, which has been so strong for Wigan quite clearly over the last two years. Just the fact that in the last three games, they've lost two of them having been ahead. And here they got level and conceded two minutes later. It's just those little things which are very easy and probably quite dangerous to overreact to in terms of a small sample size, and they don't last forever, but possibly a sign that that confidence has been knocked over the last few weeks. Uh, No lack of confidence at Millwall, or Millwall. There's four Ws in a row for them, George. They're into the playoff places. They beat West Brom here. Uh, Alex Jones, who covers Millwall, he's also a big member of the NTT20 squad, pointing out in their last three home games, they've beaten Borough, Watford, West Brom, three underperforming big boys, if you like, just perfect for Millwall to host because they always seem to get the job done against those sorts of teams. They are very confident at home. They've got a pretty perfect mentality uh, and, uh, and Rowett has got them playing some good stuff. He's been there for three years now, celebrated three years at the club last week, which should always be celebrated in itself because a three-year stint for a manager is very, very rare now. And what a good job he's done. I mean, they're currently sixth in the championship. Um, I would say basically the worst thing that Rowett has done at Millwall in three years is sometimes they've had a few spells where they don't score very freely. But if that's the worst thing that your manager does over three years, I think you've got it pretty good. And shifted away from the three at the back to get an extra attacking player on the pitch. Moved away from it, now playing a kind of four-two-three-one-four-four-two type. So lots to like here. Uh, not a lot to like in goal for West Brom. Turns out it's not just David Button who's conceding goals. So goal. weird
1: the, the the finish for the winner. Bury's finish. It's He's, it's. Bizarre.
0: You watch it live, or you watch it the first time, and you think, "Oh, must have taken a deflection, deflection off the defender." And you watch the first replay from one angle, and you think, "Yeah, it's probably taken a deflection off the defender." And then you watch the one from the perfect angle, and you go, "Oh, keeps his dive to the far post. And it's just gone. <laughs> to the near post.
1: It's just it's nicked the keeper's foot, his standing foot, from when he just decides to dive left. It was really <laughs> bizarre. The weird thing with this Millwall run is that you know we sit here and we talk about. You know this run doesn't look sustainable, or I think they're probably better than this. And they're going to show it soon. With Millwall, I didn't see this coming at all. You know, they the results before this run were okay. the The numbers were pretty poor, um, especially defensively, which we're not used to seeing from the, from them. And suddenly, um, you know, the they, the the level of performance has massively gone up. And I think game by game, and I think it just kind of shows that winning games of football can free confidence and can change the way that that you that you. Look to to get to games. You know, even before John Swift opened the scoring, were on top in this game. They deserved. They didn't deserve to go behind. Uh, and then when they went behind, they continued what they were doing, and they got their their rewards for it. Even if it was thanks to the keeper. So um, yeah, a kind of a, a good run out of nowhere, but certainly a good run uh, either way. And it doesn't look to be a purple patch or fortunate or unsustainable or anything. They've just they've just turned it on. And I'd say a bigger group
0: of contributors going forward than they've had in previous seasons, particularly from open play where. You know, it was Jedley Wallace doing a lot on his own for for large parts of the last few years. Now you've got um, Big Zian Fleming taking shots from all over, scoring five goals so far this season. You've got medium-sized Tom Bradshaw. He (laughs) scored a hat-trick in the first half in midweek. You've got uh, Afobe, whose goal returns a little low this season, to be honest. You've got Styles, who's chipped in on the weekend. Honeyman, Savile, Bury have all got a goal as well. And Cresswell and Cooper, five between them from set pieces. So it's just a bit more of a sort of varied diet, if you will. Blackburn 2, Birmingham 1, George, win, 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 loss, 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 win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, win,
1: win. First to 10 wins in the champ, Blackburn Rovers. I mean, I'm, I'm scared about taking this. because so I feel like I'm going to make myself unpopular with the team I supported as a young boy.
0: Well, um, shall but, I, why don't
1: I say what you're going to say? Okay, fine. That's good. Blackburn had
0: two shots in the first half and they scored them both, um, which helps. It does help a lot. Yes. They were nice goals, very nice goals in fairness. The first big switch out wide to, to Diaz who pulled wide as he does uh, out to the right wing, little burst forward from Morton from midfield. Very difficult, those runs to track. Little underlap. Diaz found him, cut back, fired across. Gallagher tapping in uh, from six yards out, having made that nice run from sort of outside the, the right side of centre-back to uh, to the six-yard box. And that, was, that goal was right up my street, uh, as was Adam Wharton's goal, to be honest. Just... Just a very pleasing on the eye central midfield player. Lovely finish. Incredibly young, looking incredibly talented, just sort of sauntering towards the box, shifted it onto his left foot and fired it in to the corner. Who knew Adam Morton would have a um, somersault celebration in him? I, I did not expect that. That's for a sure. Flip. Yeah. A flip somersault celebration. Um mm. so Blackburn would tunnel up in the first half and uh Birmingham had had some chances and Blackburn hadn't had very many chances, but when they did have a shot, it went in the goal. Um, By contrast, Hogan had had some good opportunities. Chong had hit the post for Birmingham in general. Like a lot of Blackburn's recent games, this was a a very even affair, if not one that that Birmingham had maybe even edged on the balance of chances and shots, uh, but Blackburn winning it as they tend to uh, David on the squad, making a, a great point, especially as someone like myself, who's always keen to, to, to sort of find the, the new young talent in the EFL. Adam Wharton was playing in this game. So was George Hall for Birmingham really young midfield player who's getting some good minutes at the moment. Uh, and off the bench, Ash Phillips, incredibly highly rated young centre-back, plays for the England uh, age groups and just signed a big new contract for Blackburn to tie him down. And Joe Bellingham as well came off the bench for Birmingham City. So by the end of this game, we'd had four under-18 players or under-19 players, all of whom, with the with a bit of luck and a fair wind and a good pathway, which these clubs both provide, you would say, Um could be some big names of the future. So yeah, I do want to shout out Blackburn and Birmingham actually for what they do as clubs providing minutes and pathways to Academy players, because not every club does that. A lot of clubs talk about doing that and uh, walking the walk is often harder than talking the talk. Both of these two do it uh, and it's good for them. It's good for young players. Good for the future of the English game. How about
1: Reading 2, Bristol City nil, or Stoke nil, Coventry 2? Stoke nil, Coventry 2. Stoke dominating the ball in this one, uh, but not really being able to create any chances of note, uh, only for Coventry to come and score two goals midway through the second half to take all three points. A, a massive win for Coventry, who continue to wrestle their way out of that um, relegation zone after a-, a disappointing start due to performances, but also um, circumstances around not being able to play at home. Um, but it's just weird with Stoke. It felt like Stoke had turned a corner under Alex Neil. You know, he's a manager that you and I both have immense um, respect for and he's the kind of manager as we saw at Sunderland last season where it kind of feels like when he gets the message across to his players and they start winning games you kind of feel like then the pennies dropped and they're going to continue to do that so it's been a bit surprising to see Stoke take one step forward then a couple back um, but yeah, it was another pretty abject attacking display from them um, where they were picked off fairly easily from the from the side who basically let them have the ball and then broke and broken got and got two important goals. Do you know who played their first 13 minutes of the season here, George,
0: at the end? Callum O'Hare. Uh, Callum O'Hare. He
1: nearly scored. He nearly scored. That's the mm. story of his career, isn't it? <laughs> Almost yeah. Um, He'll score a lot of goals for, for companies Burnley in, in January onwards. Let's de- hope not. <laughs> I've definitely not <laughs> spoken as much about Gus Hamer
0: as I would have liked this season. So this is a good time. Absolutely Unbelievable performance, really. A beautiful assist for for Allen. Uh, if if Hamer genuinely recognized that the centre back was stepping out and threaded it through the gap purposefully, then he really is pretty special. Um, as for the second goal, well, that's your defensive midfielder carrying it forty yards, cutting in between two defenders and curling into the far corner. Um would like to see more of that. Hasn't helped that he's already been sent off twice this season or twice in the first six games, in fact, uh, which just sums up why we call him box office Gus Hamer. Is it Harmer? It's Harmer, isn't it? Yeah. Gus Hamer. I'm still getting that wrong after two years. Uh, Reading 2, Bristol City nil, Uh, Very much the Reading blueprint. 22-23 here, winning games at the Madstad. Uh, and the blueprint is defend brilliantly. And I don't just mean... Last-ditch stuff. I mean, all over the pitch, out of possession, good shape, good pressing when you need to, denying space when you need to, and mostly just keeping Bristol City well away from your goalkeeper. Uh, then score a set-piece goal, really good header from Loom, from a good Ince delivery, and then a, a, and then a well-executed, a very composed counter-attack, which I've seen a lot of from Reading this season. The way that they break is so impressive. It's always It always seems really composed, which is a bit of a weird thing to talk about. With a counterattack, but if you if you see it enough times you kind of know what i mean um long it was squaring it to andy carroll to smash home and i think just big for reading because they would got one point from games against norwich swansea west brom qpr they needed to get a win because they're so good away from home uh, they're so good at home not very good away from home this season and four of their next five are away to burnley to luton to watford and to hull with a game at Preston at home in between and then the World Cup break so to have got this win is massive it's going to be a tough next five how many points they get in the next five I think is going to massively impact the mood heading into the uh the month break for the World Cup but no doubt that Reading fans are pretty happy right now and, and why wouldn't they be uh, elsewhere in the championship Sheffield United with another entertaining draw two 0 down to Norwich all of their own making you have to say poor bit of goalkeeping poor bit of defending two goals for Pukki and then roaring back. Great comeback to, to draw 2-2 two, two. and Davies, the goalkeeper, um, saving himself literally by saving Pukki's penalty, uh, which would have won the game for Norwich. And Middlesbrough nil, Huddersfield nil, was a match that took place on the southern bank of the River Tees. George, we're going to talk about Michael Carrick, Middlesbrough manager. Now? Breaking news. Breaking news. Middlesbrough have hired Michael Carrick to be their new manager slash head coach his assistant will be jonathan woodgate former middlesbrough manager what's your reaction
1: george it's hard to say isn't it really um i'm not gonna be overly bowled over by his cv as a player or as uh, an assistant coach to um Jose Mourinho and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. You know, those are roles that he um, got because of his glittering playing career. I'm definitely not saying it's a bad thing. You know, I'm not sitting here saying he's a bad coach, but um, I don't think, you know, some people will massively buy into that pedigree as being a big positive. Whereas I will wait and see what his actual coaching now and tactical now is like. Obviously, he did a good job. Um, when he was a caretaker. But again, I'm, I'm, that's too small a sample size with a completely different group of players uh, and a different you know, skill level to, to what we're going to see here as well. So um, jury's out. I mean, what I will say is it does feel like a much better cultural fit um, in terms of the actual structure of Middlesbrough Football Club with Kieran Scott pulling all the strings. There was obviously a big power struggle. I mean, it seems to me obvious there's a big power struggle between Chris Wilder and Scott um and and Neil Warnock and Scott before that. It does feel strange that it's taken this long to appoint a head coach, you know, someone Michael Carrick, as far as I'm aware, although it wouldn't surprise me at Manchester United. I don't think Michael Carrick was sitting around the, the, the table drinking red wine with Ollie and uh, and Edward Wood making uh, transfer decisions for Manchester United. So um it would suggest that Carrick is, is very much a, you know, he's an ex-player who's been a and on on the Training pitch coach for the last few years. Um, hopefully, his remit will be have been made clear to him that that is his job at Middlesbrough is to coach the team and and be the person who manages that side and and the playing cultural side as well. Whilst decisions made on recruitment and the rest of it are taken above his head, um, because it's yeah, it's, it feels like Borough's progress is, was always going to be stunted until that very clear um, hierarchy was was enforced. Um, but. Obviously, Carrick is someone who is a pretty big name. So, um, you know, if that hasn't been made clear to him, then, then maybe it won't be quite as seamless as, as it seems at the moment. I think he's going to be good. I think he's going to be good. And that's more heart than head. Because when I was a kid,
0: I absolutely loved young Michael Carrick when he what came to West Ham. I absolutely loved him. And I can't talk about him objectively right now because I want him to do really well. I just like him a lot. So there you go. I do actually think he's going to be good. Maybe we'll, I'll expand on that in the next few weeks. Let's see how we go. Michael Carrick uh, in at Middlesbrough. Maybe I was about to say, maybe we could chill out on the Championship Manager chat over the next few weeks, but there's still at least one to a point, isn't busy there?
1: Which a manager? So well, or, or 001 or 002? <laughs> Very good.
0: Tom Madeira. Good cop in League One, where we had a, a busy weekend, is Charlton Athletic. Went to Shrews and won 1-0. Not on the face of it, a result that screams good cop, but it's three wins in a row. One against Exeter. Big one live on the telly against Portsmouth. And now this very solid away win against uh, Shrewsbury. So Ben Garner has, has hit on something and it's a four four two, which I I reckon if you told Swindon fans that Ben Garner was playing a 4-4-2, they'd be pretty surprised. But I also think it's a sign that he is a manager who can adapt to what he has. What he has very specifically is Jaden Stockley, who's the captain and the striker and the only fit striker um, because Anike can't start games and Lee Byrne is injured. And if you've got Stockley up front, it makes sense to play 4-4-2, not a high pressing possession based 4 3 3 So it might have taken Garner a couple of months to switch to this, but the switch has worked. Uh, did it first in a a draw away at Lincoln and now these three wins. And it started with Lieburn up front with Stockley, which I saw in the flesh against Exeter. Lieburn was a star man, scored the first goal, looked really bright and got injured and is now out for at least a few weeks, if not months. Uh, Since then, it's been Charlie Kirk, the the de facto second striker, moved in off the left side to to get close to Stockley. He's doing a decent job. I'm not sure that's something that's necessarily going to thrive long-term, personally. Uh, This game itself was about, Jezren Raksaki, as it often is in Charlton games this season. He had a ton of chances, three really good chances, you'd say. And it was the third one that he scored to win them the game. Uh, and Raksaki's been incredibly lively since he's joined. Uh, he's up there in in terms of all League One players, in terms of xG cheaper 90. He is someone who's who looks like a level above the level, just in terms of being so good on the ball that he can create chances for himself, but also seemingly has a pretty good nose to get on the end of chances when the ball is being worked from the other side as well. Uh, I also think Egbo, the right back, his return from injury has really unlocked a few things for Charlton because he's got much better attacking instincts than um, Claire, for example, has, uh, who was playing previously right back. So uh, that allows Sack a bit more space uh, and he's thriving in it. Then, George, we have to make sure that people know what Noza on Twitter, Charlton fan, pointed out over the weekend. Just a heads up to non-Charlton fans that we have a kid making his full debut for us today whose full name is Tyrese Anthony Tupac Shakur Campbell. Ooh, what a name. You're What just, a name. You're just getting past the Tupac Shakur bit, aren't you? And in a
1: second, it'll strike you. He's called Tyrese Campbell. <laughs> Mate, I, I mean, I knew that before you said that, but yes, that is also crazy is tyrese spelled the same no how many variations of the name tyrese are there in the efl because it is it's an enjoyable number at least four no this is hmm. t-r-y-e-e-c-e
0: and tyrese campbell yeah. of stoke city is t-y-r-e-s-e regardless Exciting young player. He played off the left here in the 442. The Secret Scout, which is a great Twitter account, knows a lot about youth football. Uh tweeted scouts and coaches in Academy Football will know all about his ability. Uh he looked pretty lively here. He had a couple of efforts. One of them almost went in. Looking forward to seeing more of him. I kind of I kind of like the idea, albeit I'm kind of being flippant, that Charlton have decided their academy is so good and potentially lucrative. But they've now imposed a rule where one academy kid has to be in the team at all times. And for a while it was Lee Byrne, and now he's injured. Tupac Campbell's next up. Um, good win
1: for them. Good few weeks for them. Have you got a bad cop in League One? Yeah, bad cop in League One um, goes to Oxford United, uh, the game we were at on, on Saturday. Um, it, it was kind of hard to choose. I thought about maybe Barnsley, but I, I thought it would be doing a disservice to Morecambe after a big win. Um, but yeah, it was a, a bit of a shambolic Display you and I were both there. Um, you know, Peterborough taking a two-goal lead in the first half, um, and you know for Oxford fans it's pretty frustrating. Um, you know the second half was a bit better, uh, where Oxford got one back through Billy Bowden um, in the first half. Oxford also had a goal disallowed correctly, and also um, hit the woodwork. Um, but you know Peterborough were good value for their lead, uh, two good finishes from. Taylor and from Poku uh, and they also had a goal allowed, which again looked, looked like the right decision uh, in the second half Oxford were better you know, got got it back and then Matty Taylor was sent off for a, a shove which uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a second um, but you know, they huffed and they puffed there was one unbelievable bit of defending from Ronnie Edwards to, to deflect uh, a Marcus Brown shot over the bar with his foot from basically the goal line uh, where he was actually running the other way one of you know Certainly the best bit of defending I've ever seen Ronnie Edwards do. Um, which uh, you know, for a player of his reputation was was definitely a moment that probably um secured uh three points for his team. Um but yeah, for Oxford fans, I mean, it, it does feel to me like the Carl Robinson era is is possibly and probably ending um two games this week now. Portsmouth away on Tuesday. Um if Oxford lose that. I'd be fairly surprised if he's still in charge on Saturday where it's bolting away. And you know, it does feel like those two games that are going to be pretty hard to come away with three points given how poor um, the displays have been this season. It was interesting. Robinson actually mentioned um, how Oxford are projecting well on XG in his pre-match interview on, a, on Radio Oxford. Uh, they are, and, and I did a bit of digging into it. And, you know, before Saturday's game, Oxford had been ahead in games 15% of the season so far. Um, that was the joint lowest, I think, um, in the in the in the whole division. And when you take into account that they won their last league game before that four 0 taking the lead after three minutes, uh, basically before the Exeter game, Oxford have been ahead in games by far the least of any team in the league. Um, you know, one of the wins coming against Cambridge with a a ninety fourth minute strike. So game state is obviously going to dictate there that uh, Oxford are obviously regularly going behind in games, or, or at least it's level, and are never really protecting leads, um, which is going to make those numbers pretty noisy, uh, everything that, in terms of, of the, you know, the lack of, of width, you know, you two pretty defensive minded fullbacks. So do you have quick attacking wingers in front of them who can get balls into the box? No, you've got kind of inverted wide players and Brown and Bowden who like to come inside and populate that area, which means that you've got Long and Kieran Brown uh, having to basically do everything on the flanks in a, both a, attacking and a defensive way. You know, we saw that right-hand side of Oxford being exposed time and time again as Sam Long was 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 caught up the pitch in the first half. Um, yeah, the whole thing is a bit of a mess after some poor recruitment in the summer and in the January before that as well. So um, yeah, they're a bad cop. Um, yeah, not a great day to be a, a yellow.
0: It was interesting to be there as a neutral because the the atmosphere pre-game was just quiet. There didn't seem to be a great sense of anticipation. The atmosphere when Posh went 2-0 up turned understandably negative and a few Robinson out shouts and lots of questions being thrown at him. And then the team kind of came roaring back. Like we've said it before. Sometimes you look at a team whose manager may be about to lose their job and it looks from the outside like they're not that fussed about it. And they're actually, if anything, slightly looking forward to it and quite looking forward to a change in the dugout. I don't think this Oxford team in general are on that vibe with Carl Robinson. If you're putting it down, which I agree to some pretty shoddy squad building in the summer, is that mainly down to Carl Robinson? Like You're not one of those teams with a very obvious head of recruitment or director of football necessarily put in the strings. So yeah, some managers, I'd say, don't mark them down for bad summer recruitment. But maybe with
1: Robinson, it, he is getting marked down for that. So he he's definitely in the media in the last couple of months tried very hard to bring others into the recruitment team which he's never done before right so he'll talk about how there's a committee and the rest of it i mean the, from my understanding until the takeover went through a couple of weeks ago you know carl robinson had more control over transfers than, than most managers will um it's one of my pet hates is how often managers get criticized or praised for transfer business when actually they've had little to do with it with robinson in oxford as far as i know that's not necessarily true. Um, so I do think you can kind of point the finger at him. It's interesting you said that. I don't know if you listened to Radio Oxford on your way home, but he—I don't think you did because you got a lift with your lovely wife. Um, mm-hmm. But he—he um, he basically said exactly what you said. He, when he was being asked if he was going to get sacked, he said, "You know, did that look to you like a team who, um, like a, a team who weren't playing for me? Would you say that that you could fault them for effort? Absolutely not. And I don't think anyone is saying that, mm-hmm. but that seems to kind of." to me to forget that the role of a manager is more than just being a, a cheerleader. Mm. Like, you know, yeah. he, and he said, he was like, I've been sat once before when I was sat the first time my team stopped playing for me. That's not the case here. I get that. But there's also, it feels to me like, you know, the, the team is a reflection of your manager and the, the effort in the second half obviously wasn't lacking, but it was all just so frantic. Like I mm. kind of almost felt you needed someone to be like, just calm. Like Let's just yeah. a calm head here. So we'll see. I mean, just a, a couple of kind of stats about... Right. Oxford recently, it's not just this season, which is, you know, it's easy to just write off the back end of last season, but it's just seven wins from the last 26 games, um, three clean sheets and the last 30. This goes back the whole calendar year, effectively. It's not just since since July. So, I mean, I, as I said before, I'm, I'm a big fan of Carl as a person. I've, I've got a relationship with him where I like him and I would like him to progress Oxford forward. But at this current moment, it seems... I just don't see how there is a road from here to in X amount in a month's time, Mm. Oxford fans singing Robinson's Yellow Army and everything being a happy happy, uh, boat again.
0: Yes, I'd like to make it clear that the fact of the players still making an effort wasn't me saying, Robinson in, you have to keep him, he's going to turn things Mm. around. I've been to the Lincoln game with you, which you lost 2-1. I've been to the Peter game with you, which you lost 2-1. On both occasions, the opposition have found it incredibly simple to to create good chances against Oxford on the counter attack mm. because this team just isn't set up well at all. It doesn't make much sense when you watch it that, you know, good teams have good partnerships in different areas of the pitch and Oxford arguably don't have a single good partnership right now to finish on a positive Efron Mason Clark. First time I'd seen him in the flesh. I was pretty impressed with him on their left. Very wing. Lovely. Uh, he set up both goals, just like really good, solid wing play. Speed, directness, but then at the moment of crossing the ball, he had his head up. He knew where his teammates were, and first and the first one with his left foot, and then I think with his right foot to set up Boku, Um putting it on a plate for for Taylor and for Poku. So a good win for Posh, uh, not a good day for Oxford. They are your bad cop. Uh, let's go, MK Dons nil, Wickham one, or Wickham three wins in a row now. An absolute beauty from uh, Nick Freeman from the edge of the box, chesting down a corner. Lovely strike sweet sweet volley uh, and then i'd say the main fixture the main feature rather of almost every wick and win this season strike and goal
1: making brilliant
0: saves like what an!
1: Quite unbelievable weird unorthodox saves weren't
0: they yeah i love it reflexes <laughs> um what signing he's been you have to say strike check yeah took them a few weeks to bring him in uh, and it might have cost them a, a point or three at the start of the season, but now he's winning them points. That's for sure. Shot-stopping metrics have Strike check right at the top of League One. Uh, James Trafford of Bolton up there as well. Uh, and yeah, Wickham, I'd say for the most part, looked comfy against this pretty miserable MK Dons side. Then there was just a little late burst, wasn't there? Just a tiny pulse for MK Dons at the end. Um, albeit they lost the game and they've hit the very bottom of the league. And I don't think either of us have many more words to say about MK at the moment until things... Um, change on the pitch or off it. Uh, let's go. Ipswich one Derby nil, shall we? Friday night fair. What did you make of this one? Ipswich picking up all three points, thanks to. That was absolutely ages ago, doesn't it? Curtis Davis.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, Ipswich won the game 1 nil and were deserving winners, I would say. Yeah, it wasn't a game of, of great quality. I think a lot of that is down to Paul Warren's Derby kind of stopping Ipswich from necessarily playing their own game. I don't think many teams will, will, will kind of look to. You know, kind of turned the game into quite a you know, it's just kind of quite quite a hectic affair, I guess. Quite scrappy. Um, Ipswich weren't really able to to control possession. They they comfortably created the better chances in the game. Um, and when the game the goal came from from Wes Burns, it was, it was deserved. Uh, and the reason why they probably deserved to win by win the game by more than one goal was because Derby, for all their effort, kind of failed to to create anything of note, really. Um, They missed a penalty later on through Caden Jackson. Um, Jackson also missed a a pretty easy chance prior to that in the game. So, you know, this is a case where Ipswich were nowhere near their best, um, but they beat one of the better teams in the league 1-0 and probably should should have been comfier than that as well, which I think is a measure of, of just how good they are.
0: Elsewhere, Exeter picked up a win. Uh, the last game that Kevin Nicholson had in interim charge because their new manager is Gary Caldwell. Uh, just a note on the game, Josh Key setting up the winning goal with a brilliant piece of 1v1 attacking down the right side and beating his man, cutting it back for the winning goal. And very much in contrast to his performances defensively, particularly in the Charlton game I was at, where Key playing admittedly out of position and filling in at right centre back looked really, really vulnerable and didn't have a great defensive awareness. So I think my main point from this match is get Josh Key attacking and not defending because he can win you a game with his skill down the right side. He can also lose you a game with his poor defensive positioning. Um, Anyway, three points for Exeter and they've hired Gary Caldwell. George, it, only the only the third new manager in sixteen years because of the longevity of first Paul Tisdale and then Matt Taylor. Um, what do you make of of this Gary Caldwell appointment? I sort of feel like he must have had the greatest interview of all time.
1: Oh, it's funny you say that because I've um, seen some comments on social media about his PowerPoint proficiency, uh, nice. which must be a reference, which must be a reference to something that he's done uh, in previous jobs before. Um, good skills so, to have, yeah. So he must have been very good in his interview. I thought he would have whipped out the powerpoints, uh, impressed them with the way that he's managed to get the, you know, the the, the text like swooshing in and then growing and like doing that on the thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a surprise, I would say. Um, I think it's just a bit of a risk, I guess, is the way I'm seeing it. There are probably a few candidates who are maybe safer. Um, you know, we've seen. David Artell linked to the role, saw Neil Ardley linked to the role. You know these are guys who haven't necessarily done loads to suggest that they are deserving of a chance to take over a currently mid-table League One side, but certainly have had enough success in recent seasons to to to, to show that it would be a fairly safe appointment. With Caldwell, you've got a guy who, in his first season, I think in in management, he he won a promotion out of this league with Wigan, um, and did so convincingly as well you know let, let's not rewrite history but uh then um in the championship you know was very very quickly found out and um and was sacked uh, in october so he was actually sacked uh tomorrow 2016 so you can kind of tell from that whereabouts in the season it was um they hadn't won in four games they were 23rd he then went to, to chesterfield a year later and um couldn't turn it around was relegated at the end of at the end of that season out of league 1 into league 2 and then was sacked in September in that season where Chesterfield had back to back relegations so mm. you know not only was he sacked in September but the squad that he built he built was then um you know The squad that ended up having back-to-back relegations, yeah, exactly, which is pretty disappointing. And then went to Partick Thistle. I'm not going to pretend to know a great deal about um, his time at Partick Thistle, apart from just the fact that he was sacked pretty soon um, after he was appointed in October 2018. He was sacked at the end of the season um, in September and they uh, had been relegated that season and then were sitting second bottom of the league below again and Partick Thistle fans... It's fair to say we're not impressed with him at all, and mm-hmm. do not hold him in very high regard. So you've effectively got a manager who has managed three clubs. He's got a promotion, but he's also was sacked a couple of months later. Then the two jobs he held for for short amounts of time after that were both mired with relegations. During and then after the time he was there, he has been doing things since then. You know, he's been involved at Newcastle, and then he was um, recently, most recently at, at Hibs. But at Hibs, he was assistant to Sean Maloney, um, and Sean Maloney only lasted four months in the job uh, before they were both shown the door there as well. He, it, I, I remember not being enamoured in any way by his Chesterfield side. I think me and you were both quite strong quite early on in that in that League Two season about the Chesterfield were, whilst being seen as you know promotion hopefuls pre-season, as soon as they touched to the pitch, it was quite obvious that they were one of the worst teams in League Two. Exeter, on the other hand, have proving themselves to, you know, give managers time. Um, In Matt Taylor, they made a pretty inspired appointment that didn't really look that inspired for the first 18 months two years that he was there. So I think for Caldwell, it's an incredible job for him to get. You know, when you're thinking that he took over at Chesterfield off the back of uh, the Wigan job that went okay, however many years ago, for him to walk into a job mid-table League One now is, you know, I if we're saying that Ardley and, and Artel weren't necessarily... Obvious candidates for this for this kind of caliber of role, then Caldwell certainly isn't. Um, but he's done enough in interview to to get an opportunity, and you know it is a solid, secure, safe, well-run club. Um, but they're currently punching above their weight, which I don't think it's ever a great thing to come into a club who are doing who are doing so because where should X to finish, uh, and where's the expectation they'll finish? There's already a, a, you know a divide between those two.
0: At like the reverse, Michael Carrick, where it's incredibly likely that he will take Middlesbrough up the table, even if he does a six out of ten job. And it will be quite hard, perhaps, to work out exactly how good a job he's doing until quite a few months in. I definitely feel the reverse about Gary Caldwell. As you say, Exeter in a very strong league position. But also their next four games are against Derby, Argyle, Ipswich and Peterborough. He's got an absolute stinker of the first four games. And if there's a doubt amongst the fan base, and if they're a bit underwhelmed by this appointment, and that is the word that often gets used, and just a glance at their social media channels would suggest that is the feeling of some of the fans, that is a horrible start because there, there may not be tons of credit in the bank. They are a fan base who have been pretty supportive of managers over the years. They've had to be because they've had two in Tisdale and and Taylor for so long. Uh, But it'd be really interesting to see how they go. My Scottish mole, who was the first person to flag up the fact that he thought Paul Hartley was going to be a bit of a disaster at Hartlepool, message to say, I know there's a small sample size of Cordwell down south. If he is a success, I will be shocked. So there we go. Um, It's important to point out that just because something has happened in the past, doesn't mean it will happen in the future. So maybe it's a very, very specific remit and fit that Exeter had in mind and Caldwell could well be exactly that. They have even referenced in their statement that they are an unusual club, a specific club, fan owned, et cetera. And they will know better than me what they were looking for. Um, So we will see Gary Caldwell in at Exeter city at, We've got Accrington 2, Bolton 3. This was a lively one. Uh, at 2-0 to Accrington, Bolton was staring down the barrel of a disastrous few weeks in which they'd lost to Cheltenham, Forest Green. They hadn't scored uh, in any of those games or in the 0-0 against Barnsley and found themselves 2-0 down against Accrington. 45 minutes later, they've taken all three points and scored three goals. Uh, Ricardo Santos deserves some credit. Huge clearance yeah. off the line <laughs> at 2-0 and everything swings from that moment. Set-piece goal, own goal. Uh, Kieran Lee then ghosts in to, to tap home in very Kieran Lee fashion. And then the winner. I was so pleased to see this. Dapo lion doing a Dapo lion But we haven't seen him do a Dapo lion since, I reckon, about mid-Feb. Uh, and by that, I mean picking the ball up on the left wing, driving inside, gliding past a man with ease, shaping to shoot, little dummy, cut back onto his left, smash it in low and hard into the near post. Really good goal, a winning goal. Uh, he had 13 goals by mid-February last season. Uh, and since then, very, very little like this. Um, so hopefully he's back. He played left wing back in this game. It was a very attacking formation from Ever. Uh, Affaline left wing back is Grove right wing back. But look at his touch map. Insanely attacking. Charles and Bodvarsson up front. Lee and Dempsey breaking forward from midfield with just Williams kind of holding down the fort at the base. So six six attackers, basically, when Bolton had the ball, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it almost backfired terribly because they found themselves 2-0 down. So it's hard to say it was a good thing, necessarily. But I guess, given Accrington have the second worst open play defence in the league, and you you know that they'll probably get into your box quite a lot with their direct attacks, maybe a gung-ho approach is the, the best way. It paid off in the end, 3-2 to Bolton. And then just tons of 1-0s, George. Uh, Do you Hmm. want to talk about Morecambe 1, Barnsley 0, Forest Green 0, Pompey 1, Cambridge 0, Port Vale 1, or Burton 1, Cheltenham 0?
1: I'll take Morecambe 1, Barnsley 0 first because I think uh, Morecambe fans a bit of an apology uh, if you you listen to the betting show because I've been relentlessly trying to get against Morecambe uh, in different various guises. And I'm poorer for it. So, you know, all credit to them. Uh, this I like the wasn't... idea of
0: different guys. It's like,
1: one, you've got a top hat on. The other one, a fake moustache. <laughs> <laughs> but only, only you get to see that on the Zoom, don't you? So maybe I do. Uh, let's not ruin the the um, the mystery. Um, yeah, and they, you know, they had five shots in the game. I, I think Morecambe fans won't be too offended if I say that this is probably the way that Morecambe are going to have to win most of their games um, this season it's going to have to be taking the few chances they do create and then trying to limit the opposition to as few as possible whilst knowing that they have one of the best shot stoppers in the league and Conor Ripley to try and to try and stop them and, and here this wasn't even though Barnsley had 15 shots um, the XG is like one all uh, Barnsley didn't miss loads of, of great chances Ripley didn't have to be at his best in order to stop them as has been the case previously um, they just took the lead fairly early and were able to um you know, to, to basically keep them at arm's length, um, Kieran Phillips with the goal. So um, yeah, credit to, to Morecambe. Uh, every three points for them is, is huge because we know, we know that there is only one aim for the season and that is to uh, just to try and creep out of the relegation zone. Um, I think it's going to be tough for them, but certainly beating a Barnsley side who have been pretty decent for the most part of the season is a, is a good way of doing so.
0: Forest Green nil, Portsmouth 1. Quite straightforward this and I feel a bit bad In my analysis but the first thing that caught my eye was that forest green had two 19 year olds in their back three with bernard in particular but also ollie casey on the bench so i'm not exactly sure of the circumstances here with bunker and marquez starting over those two and clearly i don't know the context of the last few games i haven't watched forest green as closely over the last few weeks but Certainly, to my eyes, a surprising call from Birchnell uh, and maybe making a point about the performances of the more senior centre-backs. Unfortunately, it's hard to ignore the fact that the two youngsters had a pretty tough time. Um, One of them missed an interception for a big Colby Bishop chance early on, uh, which wasn't taken. And then a few minutes later, Raggett held off the other young centre-back to head home a corner. I mean, mean, marking Raggett from a set-piece is about as difficult as defending gets in League One. So it's hard to be too critical, but you know, our job is to try and tell the story of these games. And that for me was the story of, of this game, really. It was a, a relatively comfortable afternoon for Portsmouth. Um, I don't mean to bash Bishop, but he probably should have had at least one goal here. Um, but a good time for a comfy away win for Pompey after four games without one in the league with any win in the league. Uh, and there you go. Uh, two more Cambridge, nil, Port Vale one or Burton one Cheltenham nil uh, Cambridge, Neil
1: Portvale one, um, Interestingly, for those who are intrigued by this kind of thing, you know, it's it's not a betting specific point, so don't worry if that's not your thing. But there was a massive market move towards Port Vale before this game, Uh, kind of weirdly so, where they went off like under six to four. I think um, Cambridge were nine to four to win it. Which and what does that mean, George? Well, it it might not seem relevant. Big market move to those who you know to those who aren't um, like football for football and not for for betting reasons, but generally the people who. You know, a, a moving markets. From what I could tell, there wasn't massive team news in order to, to um, mean that they would see this. You know, Cambridge didn't suddenly have eight players out. It basically means that the people who are who are smarter, the people who have enough money to move markets, um, are either very very sweet on Port Vale or pretty negative about Cambridge, and it's hard to know which one really because you know Cambridge have clearly gone through a, a disappointing run in terms of results uh, basically since had turned down Rotherham. And Port Vale have been very good, but the perception is certainly there. It'll be interesting to know what happens in the next couple of weeks. Um, maybe it is that that Port Vale are, are, you know, are, are one of the dark horses in in League One as it stands at the moment. Um, they're a pretty good value for their win. Uh, interesting to note, you know, Mitov has been um, a pretty consistent figure uh, for Cambridge. I mean, I guess that could have been the move itself, although actually his his goals prevented rate this season Mitov's is is. One of the poorest mm. in League One, which I was quite surprised to see. Uh, so, Mannion uh, came in, um, who is Will Mannion, making his third appearance for the club. Uh, had quite an f- interesting um, career so far, including a, a year in the Cypriot Premier League at Paphos, which Lovely. I'm quite jealous about. Mm. Surprised he ever came back. Um, but he made a couple of really big saves in the first half to keep Cambridge in it. Um, they were the better side in the game. And it was a, a disappointing Digby own goal where he kind of not converted the ball into his own goal, fairly unchallenged from about six yards out, um, which ended up swinging in the game in, in Darrell Clark's team's favour. But um, yeah, certainly uh, got to be pretty positive about uh, Port Vale so far this season. They're in 14th, but they're playing pretty consistently well and uh, and he's doing a good job and it was another a big win for them on the road.
0: That was Forrester with a brilliant cross, the, the right-sided centre-back who... Just decided to gallop forward and see if he could get get his team a a winning goal. He basically did that with a brilliant cross that turned in by by Digby. Uh, Fans were not delighted to have signed a player from Stoke City, but he's getting rave reviews. Cambridge have lost five in a row now, ever since Mark Bonner was very publicly, very close to Mm -hmm. being hired by Rotherham, um, turning them down at the 11th hour. And I remember him saying something like in his his interview, everyone's like waiting to hear from Mark Bonner. What's he going to say? And as part of his "I'm staying" interview, he said something like, "I'm just so excited for this really big month we have ahead of us in October with mm. some really tough games. Five played, five defeats, one scored, ten conceded. Hmm. Uh, Burton one nil Cheltenham. Burton one Cheltenham nil. Uh, and the better side and a good solid home win really." Uh, I think for Burton, Adeboyejo with the winning goal for the first time in his career. He is a team's starting striker. He's being shown belief by a manager and and repaying it because he looks very lively, He's scoring different types of goals. This one was a classic poacher's finish, attacking across from the left, getting in front of the defender and across him, uh, finishing first time low. Uh, seven goals in 13 starts for Adeboyejo. It's been a, an eye-catching few weeks for him since Marmaria took charge in particular. Um, they've got Adrian Mariapa. Almost always called him Adrian. Adrian Mariapa wearing playing. number playing centre back wearing number eight, which is quite classic. Uh, I mean Andy Cow should have a chat. And then Deji Osha who wears their number four, is now a marauding center midfielder. So interesting. We we kind of we said after their first win of the season, which was against Exeter, that they really fit the bill for the new manager bounce Burton. And they have got it. Now, since the win against Exeter. It's eight points from six games. It's not an unbelievable return, but it's a positive return. It's much better than before. Performance data is pretty good. Certainly, you know, better than a relegation threatened team level. That's for sure. Creating plenty, loads from set pieces, quite a lot from open play as well. But it's worth pointing out the fixture list has been very kind for Marmarie and Burton. There are tough tests to come. These are their seven fixtures before Christmas. Bolton and Sheffield Wednesday away then Charlton and Argyle at home, then MK Dons and Barnsley away with Derby at home sandwiched in between. So Burton have got about as tough a seven games before Christmas as as anyone else. And if they can snatch a few wins and get, let's say, eight or nine points from those seven games, that would be an amazing return. I really believe that, but it's a tough ask. And, you know, even if they get one point per game, if they get seven from those seven, They'll be on 19 after 22 games, still under that one point per game mark. So a long way to go for Burton. A lot of positivity around Dino Marmaria and understandably so. They look highly motivated, but they will need to keep that motivation up, even in the face of some poor results if they come, because it's uh, it's not going to be easy. For, For Cheltenham, this was one of those really bad defeats, particularly for the manager, because fans go, hold on. This Burton team were the ones that were basically relegated after four weeks. We remember that they were a shambles, and now they're only two points behind us, and they've kind of disposed of us fairly, fairly simply here. Um, it's just a yeah, it's a funny old league, isn't it? That League One relegation battle is is yeah. horrible, draining, exhausting, disorienting. Four spots. You just once you get sucked in, it's hard to suck yourself out of it. Anyway. <laughs> Elsewhere, Bristol Rovers 2, Argyle 2 was a, an exhilarating game at the Mem. actually. Argyle scoring two worldies through Azaz and Randall, uh, and Rovers coming roaring back to grab a deserved point, uh, Coburn and Collins. Uh, and then Lincoln, they came back from an early Rushworth mistake, which Gregory made the most out of to draw one all with Wednesday, which makes it four points from two games against Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday on consecutive weekends for Lincoln City. Very impressive stuff. Uh, in League 2, George, why don't you bad cop it first
1: up? By copying, and this kind of bleeds into League 1 as well, uh, it's refereeing decisions around a certain type of red card. It's quite weird to have three of this genre of rouge in the same weekend, Um, but I'm just going to have to talk out against a red card given for Raising your hands in retaliation to fouls. Now, I know we kind of touched on this earlier with the Callie Robinson thing. I do think hitting the opposition in the face with a ball is slightly different to what we're going to talk about here. I also don't think that Cabango provokes him as much as others. But we've got two occasions here, starting with, um, we'll do Danny Hilton first. Uh, You know, Stevenage are 3-2 down in the very last minutes of this game. uh, And Hilton is being grappled he's being manhandled he's being kind of tugged around and he turns around after the ball's gone and he kind of says it's basically just like a get off like get off and he pushes him away pushes the, the, the stevenish center back away if the phrase get off was a physical action it was that exactly it was exactly that i think we can say the same about um edmondson in the Leighton orient uh, carlisle game this was a far more important red card. It came in the 36th minute, letting Orient with 2-0 up, 2-1 uh, up. Carlisle had a penalty appeal, which I think was probably a penalty. You know, there's, there's a deflected shot. The arm is definitely in an unnatural position. I think it should have been given. And Ryan Edmondson is, um, I, I don't know who the defender was and which which Orient player it was. Um, again, he's trying to protest and he's being wrestled and tugged. The guy grabs his arm and is getting it. And again, you've got Edmondson saying, get off me. And he does a very similar thing. Same reaction, hands in the face, red card. Oxford-Peterborough, slightly different, I would say, where the aggressor, uh, well, the, the action from Taylor, um, this is back into League One, was definitely more aggressive than the other two. But the initial infringement, the foul from Edwards, um, lasted about seven seconds. He got a yellow card for the foul itself. I think if you are reacting to a yellow card offence, um, and it's not violent conduct. Then to get a red card is massively over. Um, it's you know it's it's too much. So my bad cop is we've gone so far to the literal rules of the game that now seemingly raising your hands to a face is an automatic red card, ignoring any kind of circumstance or reason behind it. And it's one of those things where it has to stop because you are you are incentivizing the behaviour of defenders to try and get a reaction out of people by holding them or by grappling them. And so it's probably no coincidence we've seen this happen three times this weekend where I'm pretty sure any, any centre-back who watches the EFL highlights this weekend will see that and think to themselves, interesting, right? Mm. That's probably quite a good way of, of trying to wind people up. So that is my bad cop. It is the EFL referees. Let's put a stop to this madness where you're sending players off for basically reacting in, in what is, in my mind, human nature and a pretty inhuman way to react to someone grabbing you and stopping you from doing what you're trying to do. I know full well, if I, you know, if someone came up behind you now whilst you're podcasting and put their hand around your mouth and stop you from being able to talk, you'd probably turn around and push them in the face. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Good cop. Cobblers, Northampton Town and more broadly, Stevenage 2, Northampton Town 3, which I think was basically the game that had everything. It had a penalty in the first minute for Northampton, scored by a Pere. Uh, Cobblers came out super strongly here. Uh, Brady had switched to a three at the back system, which was a move away from where he'd been the last few weeks. I guess that was to handle Stevenage's uh, very particular type of bombardment. And it was a move that paid off big time. It really, really worked for him. That was a good bit of management, that. Steve Evans got sent off in the first half. Um, at this point, with 30 minutes in. Stevenage haven't had a shot yet. They're rattled. Evans sent to the stands. Uh, then they do have a shot. And it goes in Danny Rose of Stevenage equalising against his old club. 1-1. At half time, we get a breather and then for like the first half an hour of the second half, it's all quiet. It's too quiet. Surely this game isn't going to peter out. Of course it won't. Not this one. And because even though Steve Evans isn't on the touchline, Danny Hilton's on the pitch. And as you've referred to, he's going to have a big say in things. He's got a nose for a few things, Danny Hilton. One of them is quality forward play and the other is kind of just drama, shithousery. And we saw a bit of both. We saw his hold-up play to set up Bowie's strike to put them ahead. Brilliant piece of play from Hilton. Great strike from Bowie. Cobblers are ahead for two minutes before a corner. Knocked down by Pierjani. Scramble. Gilby goal. 2-2. Stevenage doing what they do. Um, But the celebratory Stevenage pyro was still drifting across the pitch it was applying a pinkish filter to the camera as Danny Hilton provided just a bit more quality down the left side to set up a pin at cross which drifted like the smoke bomb to the back post. And McWilliams flew in from nowhere in front of the fullback Clark and volleyed home. Absolute bedlam in the away end, brilliant scenes. Hilton, as you've referred to, then sent off for a little shove. Uh, very annoying for him, very annoying for John Brady, but somehow it felt like a, a sort of apt ending to this game that had it all. A Cobblers into the top three, two points per game after 15 games. That's a very, very good start to the season. Oh, and also we had some celebration policing. Stevenage manager Evans and a lot of his players chuntering away about Northampton celebrating like they'd won the league in October, which is always incredibly tedious. I would say Northampton were celebrating like they'd won a tight, fiery, competitive encounter against a clear promotion rival, a game which had two red cars, five goals, and ended a run of three without a win. Completely fair enough. Stevenage, seven out of seven at home before this. Not anymore. Good cop. Northampton Town. Big, big win. Why don't you just tell me about that Carlisle-Layton-Orient game, George? It was another fixture that stood out. It was another 3-2 win, this time for Orient at Carlisle.
1: A fairly tight game um, between two sides that I think are two of the better teams in the division. Although I'm pretty sure Carlisle will certainly feel... Agree for, for loads of reasons, partly because of the penalty, partly because of the red card. Also, it was two of the goals were their own, uh, were from their own uh, mistakes. Uh, Mellish being caught in possession, playing out from the back, uh, Dryden's the, the third goal as well was, was then being caught on the ball. Um, have to say though that because I feel like any Orient fan listening so far will be like, hold on, what you've said is it wasn't a red card and that uh, you've, you know, mentioned the mistakes. Um, the finish, well. Both of Archibald's goals are brilliant, but Theo Archibald's second goal is one of the, my favourite finishes of the whole weekend. Yes, it was a mistake at the back and um, you know, Carlisle will feel it was avoidable, but a, a sumptuous left-footed chip from outside the area into the top left-hand corner. Yes, a chip into the top left-hand corner. You heard that correctly. Um, it was a, a brilliant goal, and a, you know, full of quality and deserving to put them ahead in the game. Uh, I think credit to Carlisle, who despite playing for most of the game with 10 men, um, it was a pretty tight contest. Uh, you know, they they came back from three one down to, to get a goal to make it um, you know tight into the, the final stages of the game. Uh, but later Orient deserving winners in the end. Um, although Carlisle would probably like to have the game back and do it all again because I feel like a lot of things um, didn't go the way they wanted it to. Uh, and I I don't think they lose much in defeat in my opinion. Uh, but Orient showing again that they are um, to, after a difficult few games. Um, you know, they are still one of the class teams in in the division. And a third 3 2 win came at Crawley for Crawley against
0: Mansfield Town. Uh, and this one was thanks in part due to some brilliant forward play, combination play, really, between Tom Nichols, who's the kind of deep lying forward of the two, and Ashley Naddison, who led the line. Naddison scoring twice, both times set up by Nichols. Uh, they were 2 0 up after 15 minutes. Nichols had scored from a set piece as well. Great cross in that one. 2 0 ups up after 15 minutes. And then. We'd seen it all before. A penalty conceded quite harshly, if you ask me. I think the Crawley defender was pushed in the back, which then led to him handling the ball, scored by Mansfield. And then they conceded another back level by 30 minutes. This all felt quite Crawley 22-23. But this is Crawley Town under the interim management of Lewis Young. And they didn't crumble, and they didn't fall, and they didn't lose from there. No, they won from there uh, just after halftime. A great ball over the top from Nichols brilliant take from Nadison, showing speed and composure and a good finish as well uh, 3-2 and that's how it stayed so Lewis Young doing himself no harm whatsoever uh, in his interim role so far they've won two in the league uh, one in the EFL trophy uh, as well uh, Newport one Cole u Nil was the first game for Graham um, Coughlin I didn't want to say it because I, th- I think I pronounce it wrong Coglin, Coughlin, Coughlin? Like, it's the word cough, isn't it? But I'm not sure it's Coughlin.
1: But I don't know. Coughlin? Yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, we've I... got some Irish but we'll, we'll, we'll hear from them. I'm sure we've probably already been told before when we got it wrong back in the day. What do you make of the appointment of Graham at Newport? I like it, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, mm. I, only, I can only judge him based on, on you know, two jobs that we've seen so far and um, the suitability in successing james robery um he left Bristol rovers in an incredibly lofty position and understandably he'll be able to dine on dine out on that for a long time you know i'm sure when he was interviewed for the newport county job he would have brought up the position that Bristol rovers were in when he left which was i think they were third in league one and where they ended up finishing which was way down the table we knew at the time and we said at the time you know the they were the biggest outlier in terms of the underlying numbers in the whole league. Um, they were kind of riding high in, a, in an understandable way, um, and it was no real shock, regardless of who the manager was, that they ended up um, regressing. And then at Mansfield, you know, he's one of many managers at Mansfield where it hasn't worked out. Um, and you know, it was it was seen as a perceived as a huge coup to get him at the time, given where Bristol Rovers were. Um, it's it's a very small sample size you know he's quite clearly a, a pretty old school i mean i'm not going to say coach because i've never worked under him but in terms of his kind of media um uh, the way he speaks to the media the way that he comes across you know it feels like he's the antithesis really of james Robbery, who was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and was full of all the new age f- lingo that you and i Um, Have when it comes to data and the rest of it he seemed to kind of understand football in the same way that we do I think it's fair to say that Coughlin doesn't now I know that they sat robbery in and understandably so given the poor results Um, but in my mind making a a change in mid-season from chalk to cheese is risky and it doesn't reflect very well uh, especially when you think of the recruitment shouldn't be just recruiting in the eyes of of who's a good player you should be recruiting to play a certain way and a certain system and a manager moving on shouldn't necessarily change that. So a few red flags for me, but, you know, an, a, an excellent start to his managerial tenure. And I'm, I'll be very happily be... Pre- I'm not I'm not saying I think he will do a bad job. I'm just saying on paper, in terms of what we know about him, it doesn't look a great fit to me.
0: Well, it was a comfortable first win, wasn't it? They set up in a 3-5-2, yeah. which I seem to remember from his previous jobs. Uh, they went ahead early, nicely worked goal, headed in by Gebwin's favourite son, Will Evans, my Welsh pronunciation. You can say issue. that, yeah. No issues whatsoever. <laughs> and they were just very comfortable from there, which, which, you know, makes for a, an, a pleasing change, I think, for the Newport fans. They've lost so many home games over the last, well, all calendar year, really. Uh, it should be noted Colchester away from home are desperate. Uh, in their last six away league games, they've had only seven shots on target. So, bigger tests to come. Um, for Newport but a, a positive start. Another new appointment uh, was Danny Schofield at Doncaster George's. First game in charge was a, a draw at Crew, one all. Uh, let's just touch on the appointment. He left Huddersfield Town of course not long ago having stepped into Carlos Corboran's shoes and had a very 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 tough start to life as a manager um, which ended in his sacking what around 10 games in. I despite that quite for, for Doncaster, personally, I'm interested to hear your views. I'm not sure that you'll necessarily agree, but I, where I come at it from is I'm not willing to write him off as a bad manager or head coach based on what we saw at Huddersfield. Um, and he was highly enough thought of before the appointment to make me think that he's got something about him, at the very least, in terms of, of coaching, tactics, develop, player development, those sorts of things. Um, it's, it's obviously not like a slam dunk obvious immediate upgrade and there aren't many of those available in league two when you think about it even people at the top of league two now like uh steve evans in a sense was a bit of a slam dunk immediate upgrade for stevenage but maybe wouldn't be for every team in league two uh, john brady didn't seem like a slam dunk at obvious immediate upgrade based on his career up to that point, stepping in at Northampton, even Richie Wellens, who looks like he's performing brilliantly and oh wait, we remember him doing that before at Swindon. Well, those jobs at at Doncaster and and Salford had kind of muddied the waters a bit. So I think in league two, you're not going to get that sort of appointment, but I do think it could quite quickly look quite good personally. Um, I think stepping into Corbaran's shoes was a very, very, very difficult task based on, Korberan's character, the way that he worked and what he achieved last season with Huddersfield, stepping into Gary McSheffrey's shoes should not be as difficult as stepping into Carlos Korberan's shoes. So I sort of think you don't end up with the reputation that Schofield had before the summer as a fluke. So I'm obviously guessing here, but I think there's something there and, and I hope that we'll see it. We also know that A certain playing style is part of the remit here. Doncaster made that pretty clear when they sacked McSheffrey, that there is an extent to which they want to see a certain amount of attacking, free-flowing, presumably possession-based technical football. Um, That kind of adds a a layer of difficulty, I think, to stepping into a new job. But I'm sure he's up for it. Um, Got the local connection too. Was born in Doncaster, which sometimes I'm not sure how much that's worth. But I think there can be a bit of value in it if things start going well. Uh, what do you make of Schofield in at Donny?
1: I agree with you to an extent. Like I, I certainly wouldn't judge him off the Huddersfield job. I think it was a hospital pass of a job to get fairly late in the summer. Um, plenty of key players moving on, um, and expectations set wildly high because of the season before that. Having said that, um, I saw very little evidence of of much. Uh, managerial talent in the um, the games that, that he did oversee. That isn't to say there isn't managerial talent there, but uh, you know, it's 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 massively juries out sitting on the fence rather than predicting he's going to be any good or any bad. And if I had to make a call one way or the other, it'd probably be the negative one because of the the lack of evidence to support it at this stage. But I do think you know I agree with you where they've gone after a manager highly thought of where there is significant upside, whereas appointing a manager who's probably failed and succeeded at League 2 level previously, there's a ceiling, you know, so I like the ambition. I agree with you that taking on a job from Gary McSheffrey shouldn't be the toughest. I don't think the squad is great. Um, I, I You know, I, I don't think they should anticipate that they should finish in the top six personally. um, But, yeah, jury, we'll see. Jury's out. I hope he does well. Maybe seventh. Still get a playoff spot. So, yeah, seventh, top
0: seven. A <laughs> um, couple of away wins now. Rochdale one, Wimbledon two. Uh, Wimbledon going ahead. Very brave finish from Ayubasal. Very brave Young player, isn't he? Always seems to put his, his foot, his head, his body where it hurts and uh, whether it's winning a penalty a couple of weeks ago springs to mind uh, and a brave finish here to, to get Wimbledon started. And then a hell of a take from his strike partner, Davison, running onto a long hoof forward. Um, a couple of really good touches at full speed, pulling away from the centre back uh, and then finishing low past the goalkeeper as well. This one was notable for, for a, a new shape for Wimbledon and for the return of Alex Woodyard, who came in, in midfield, man of the match for them. Um, They've been waiting, waiting, waiting for him to come back because he's so popular there, has such a big role in a leadership sense and also in a midfield sense. So it was 4-2-3-1 with Woodyard and Riley Towler in the defensive midfield pivot. Towler obviously signed as a centre-back, but now playing defensive midfield. Harry Pell in the attacking midfield role, um, getting close to the strikers. Uh, Chislett tucked off the right wing. Uh, Assal off the left wing, Gunter right back and Curry left back. So uh, interesting change. I um, think I might be seeing them in the flesh against Crew tomorrow night. So I'll be able to speak more on them next week. Uh, George Salford, nil
1: Stockport two. Big result for Stockport County. Yeah, big result for them. <clears throat> um, they, I mean, it hasn't been the return to the EFL that they necessarily would have wanted. Um, but to go to to Salford and, and get that, result and do it pretty comfortably as well winning the game 2-1 sorry 2-0 um they were good value for it uh over the course of the 90 minutes um Salford pretty disappointing you know it's been a bit of a theme um at times this season already and uh, that is their third defeat at home all three of them coming to nil against Tranmere and Bradford so you know when you're losing against the better teams in the league comfortably at home i think there have got to be question marks as to whether or not you, you are one of those teams um but yeah for Stockport they you know they were dominant in terms of the, the um, chance they created. Collar and Madden getting the two goals. Um, Salford had plenty of you know shots in between the two, but without creating too much. Yeah, but for Salford fans um, or oh, I think anyone watching on to League Two, yeah, the, the last couple of weeks have maybe had to we've had to recalibrate uh, whether Salford are one of the uh, automatic promotion contenders. Last but not least, Swindon Town,
0: two-one winners at home to Hartlepool. Uh, We spoke last week about their 1-0 win against Colchester United. It was a pretty poor game with a very poor winning goal. Uh, Swindon winning, but not purring. Uh, This week, not purring yet, but better, I'd say. And much better goals as well. Two great goals, in fact, both from excellent crosses. One from Gladwin to Johnny Williams and one from Romeo Hutton to Luke Jeffcott, who headed home. So, good win for Swindon. I think the fact that Hartlepool pulled one back with an hour to go... And then had just two more shots total. Tells you what you need to know here. Comfortable home win for Swindon. Uh, and then in League 2, there were more draws than a spaghetti western. Who wrote that line? That's a terrible line. Crewe and Doncaster, Sutton and Walsall, Gillingham and Barrow, Harrogate and Tranmere all drew 1-1. And Grimsby nil, Bradford nil, was a match that took place in a seaside town on the estuary of the Humber. Thank you very much to Betfair for their continued support of this podcast. Thanks to you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. Give it a share if you have. Why not? Might reach someone new who'll enjoy it in future weeks. Otherwise, we'll be back again second half of the week. Go well, everyone.